Morning. Oh, it's a long way down. It's because I need glasses, not because I'm taller than Mark, but I'm refusing to get glasses till I'm 50, and then uh, I'll, I'll probably need the specs one. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, it's not long to go, as some of you are pointing out. Oops, I think I on the clicker. Excuse me. Now I do need glasses, says John. So we're looking at a series on prayer, as Marcus said. And what we're going to do is work our way through the Lord's Prayer, pretty much line by line for the next five or six weeks. And today we're looking at that first part, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now you may be thinking, why another series on prayer? If you're like me, you've probably heard plenty of messages about prayer. As a good Christian, you know you should be praying. But you may also be, as many Christians do, feel like, well, either you don't really pray or you don't pray enough. Perhaps you feel a little bit like this fellow. He sees Bob coming. He says, oh, great, here comes Bob. I told him I'd pray for him. Dear God, help Bob. Amen. Hey, Bob, been praying for you. Now, that hits a bit too close to home sometimes. I think uh, my experience of saying I'll pray for someone can be a little bit like that, sadly. But what is it about prayer that it's worth coming back to again? We know it's vital to our spiritual health. A Norwegian theologian, Old Hallesby, has written a wonderful book about prayer, says to pray is to let God into our lives. And I was thinking about that yesterday as I was cutting the hedge in our back garden, which is quite enormous, and the landlords only left us a pair of rusty old cicateurs, so it would probably take a month by that. But the neighbor seeing my misery, kindly offered their electric, cheap and cheerful thing, hedge trimmer. And so I started using that. This wasn't yesterday, by the way. I was reflecting on past experience. And as I was cutting it, going all wonderfully well, and then all of a sudden it stopped working after I'd made a particularly violent movement. I was thinking, you know, what's going on? I pulled the plug out, and I turned around and said I managed to cut through the power cord. (laughs) So as a good Christian, I went and bought them another equally cheerful and cheerful one from B&Q, And then I was holding that thing, thinking, well, I'm not going to throw this away. I've grown up in Africa. I've lived in Spain. We don't do health and safety. So I found some little joiny things to, you know, stick the electric cables together. And off I went again with our hedge trimmer now. Well, this happened three or four times over the course of the last couple of years until eventually it was sitting in the shed with about this much cable left. (laughs) So we finally accepted defeat and went out and got another one. But I was thinking our lives can be a little bit like that hedge trimmer. We have the tools we need. But without that connection, that cable, we're not going anywhere. We're not going to cut anything. And prayer is that connection with God, as Old Hallersby tells us. It lets God into our lives. And he goes on to say that helplessness is our greatest prayer. If you think you can fix it, you don't turn to God. And Natasha and I have experienced this in the last six months when our landlord said, we're coming back, you need to find a new house. We began a bit of a journey saying, God, what next, what now? and felt that, well, maybe it's the time to buy at the ripe old age of 49. It's obvious time to buy your first house. And and yet, it seemed like that was what God was saying, but we were completely helpless to make it happen. And so we embarked on a journey of prayer, setting aside time to pray together more and more. And we've been amazed to see how God has answered. And now things have suddenly moved forward, and we're hoping to, to sort of conclude the deal in a few weeks. I sort of looked at Natasha, and I said, We've kind of stopped praying, haven't we? 
So we sort of think things are done. And, and we, had, we set aside another time. Let's keep praying because that was our connection to God. It was our helplessness that drew us to God. And the amazing thing about prayer, whatever else, is that God wants us coming to him with our needs, with our worship. He's not a distant God. And Martin Luther says, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. It's how we live the Christian life. We can't be in relationship with God unless we're praying. So we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. We're not going to give you a formula over these next six weeks of if you do this, God will do that. Or if you pray like this, God is happy. And if you pray like that, he's mad. Jesus himself, in the, in the bit before the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, says it's not about babbling like the pagans. Now the Lord's Prayer is great for us to read as it is, pray as it is, part of our liturgy as a, as a church, uh, as individuals, to pray that prayer. But we're going to try and unpack it a bit more. And we could look at many different people who prayed in the Bible. We could think of Abraham beginning his journey with God, Moses in those moments of revelation and where he seeks God and says, I want to see your face. David, as Mark was saying, particularly in the Psalms, pouring out his heart to God. Daniel, three times a day, no matter the consequences, I'm going to pray. And Paul, who's left many amazing prayers in his letters. We could look at all those, but we're going to look at what Jesus did. You know, the disciples were not the sharpest bunch, but one thing they quickly realized was that Jesus' prayer was the secret to his life. They saw him praying at his baptism. They saw him praying all night on the mountain before he chose them to follow him. They saw him praying throughout his ministry. Read Luke 5.16. Jesus often, very often, maybe he was just trying to get away from the disciples, I don't know, but it was to pray. Jesus often withdrew. We see him praying at the Last Supper, that great high priestly prayer of John 17. We see him praying in desperation in the garden. We see him praying on the cross. Jesus' life was a life lived in prayer Fully dependent on the Father. He tells the disciples in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And whatever the Father does, that's what the Son is going to do. He was fully dependent on God. And so as the disciples see this, they say in Luke 11, Lord, teach us to pray. We don't know how to pray. We've grown up in the Jewish synagogue. Yes, we know some set prayers. Yes, we know we can come to God, but Lord, there's something different. Teach us to pray. And we're not going to look at the version in in Luke. We're going to look at Matthew's version, which is slightly longer. And here it is, the Lord's Prayer. So, to wake you all up, how about we all read this together as our prayer this morning? Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. And together, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus, as the good Jewish rabbi, left us this model prayer. And as I said, we can use it just as it is in our prayers. But He's giving us a pattern of prayer. And before we get into the sort of nitty-gritty, I want to make a few points that I hope will set up the rest of the series. So the first of these is this prayer shows us our priorities. You will see the first three petitions 
are all about God, His name. That's what we're going to be especially looking at this morning. His kingdom, His will. Again, this is not a formula of guaranteed success. And if you wake up one morning with a burning desire to talk to God and you say, God, I really need you to work about... He's not going to say, tut, 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 you forgot the bit about hallowing my name and my kingdom. No, God wants us to come to him. But this shows our general priorities. They must be God's priorities. His name, his kingdom, his will first. Jesus goes on to say at the end of Matthew 6, seek his kingdom first, then everything else is added. Secondly, when we pray, we need this element of patience. There's a present and a future dimension to this prayer. Everything we're asking for God to do, yes, we want him to do it in our lives, in the here and now, but we recognize that none of these prayers will be fully, completely answered until either we get to heaven or Christ returns. We don't control things. God is sovereign. We don't have a way of twisting God's arm. He is the one who decides when and how things are answered. And he will not fully bring about his kingdom, his will, his praise, until Christ returns. So we have to be patient in that prayer. We cannot force God to do what we want to do. We do want to see God working day by day in our lives, more and more. But it's his sovereign will that counts. And then, lastly, all of these are actually petitions for God to intervene in our lives. And I've kind of said that. Already, But especially these first three where we tend to think, well, maybe they're a bit more worship, praising God's name. They're actually petitions for God to be at work in our lives. And the commentators tell us that that last phrase of the third petition, your will, let it be done. We read on earth, you know, let, your, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The commentators tell us that that probably goes with all three of these first petitions. And I've tried to put the structure there is close as you can match it to how it's written in Greek. It wouldn't make sense if I did it exactly, but you'll see that they're very similar and matched in how they're structured. So when you read it like this, our Father in heavens, your name, let it be hallowed, your kingdom, let it come, your will, let it be done. It ends with this phrase, as in heaven, so on earth. Heaven is where God's name is perfectly hallowed. Heaven is where God's kingdom is fully realized. Heaven is where his will is done perfectly. And as we pray this prayer, we are asking God to make that so on earth, in the here and now, in Abbey Church, in our families. Lord, let your name be hallowed in my family, in my community, my land, if you will. So this last phrase, as in heaven, so on earth, goes to all three of these first petitions of God. So that's to say, that's kind of set the series up and let's focus this morning on our Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed as in heaven, so on earth, or as I put there, on earth as it is in heaven. So how are we going to do that? Well, I want to kind of break down each of those and look in a little bit more detail. What does it mean to pray our Father in heaven? Literally, it says, our Father in the heavens. And one writer says that it's important to keep that because for the biblical authors, heaven wasn't a place just far off. That could be one of the heavens, but heaven was also what's around us and close to us. It's almost like a double significance when you read in the heavens. God is both infinite, eternal, but he's near. 
He's close to us. Hagar in Genesis 16, when she's lost in the desert and God provides a well, she says, you're the God who sees, who's right there with me, seeing this and providing for my need. God tells Moses in Exodus 3, I've seen and I've heard what's going on with the misery of my people. He's not distant, immovable, up there, uninterested, unless we somehow get his attention. The Bible portrays God as close to us, near to us. So he's both infinite and intimately present. As David puts it in his famous Psalm 23, the eternal, unbounded, infinite, those are my words, Lord, that's what it means to be, for God to be Lord, he's eternal, unbounded, infinite, is my personal close shepherd. He is leading me day by day. Again, the theologian I mentioned before says, the air which our body requires envelops us on every hand. It's all about us. But the air which our souls need also envelops us at all times and on all sides. God is round about us in Christ on every hand with his many-sided and all-sufficient grace. All we need to do is open our hearts. God is near to us. It's not that when we pray, Our Father in heaven, we're somehow hoping our voice reaches up to him at a distant point. God is near. He's with us. He is in the heavens. He's with us. He's that infinite Lord and close shepherd. So God is in the heavens. But what does it mean to say, our Father in the heavens. It's interesting, there's a very similar Jewish synagogue prayer that we know from the same time as Jesus, and it's structured very similarly to the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, those first three petitions, but it doesn't address God as Father. It just prays to the Lord. And it was this, I think, this amazing thing that seems to be part of Jesus' intimacy with God is calling him this, Father, and the scholars tell us it would have been Abba, Father, Dad, or Pops, as my boys call me now. And as I, you know, as I was preparing this series, I, I was reflecting how our earthly fathers can limit our view of our heavenly father and thinking, I hope my boys know God is a better father than I am. And that desire to be more like God so that he can be seen in me as father. But what does it mean to say God is our father? We can get all wrapped up in that. We can maybe get too familiar. We can be affected, as I said, by our own earthly fathers. Well, I want to point out at least three ways that I think it makes a difference to our praying, and there could be many, many more. First, it means when we come to God as Father, we come accepting his authority over us and his discipline of us. In, in, in the culture, in the Bible, the fathers have complete authority over the sons and the daughters, the children. It's not like here where as soon as you head off to work or university at 18, it's bye-bye, see you later. You know, and growing up in Africa, I've seen the same thing where the old man lying on the bed at his 60, 70 years, whatever it is, still has complete authority over the young men, the 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, even though they have their own family because he's the dad. And that doesn't change, no matter how old and weak he gets. And of course, God doesn't get weak and old, but he is our father. You look in the Bible, in the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, if you as a son disrespect your father or curse your parents, what are you guilty of? What is, what is the punishment? Death by stoning. That's quite a, a severe way of treating your children. But that was the concept of fatherhood. This father has absolute authority. The Bible tells us God is a consuming fire. So we can't, yes, we come to God in that intimacy, and we'll see that a bit more in a moment, 
Yes, he is our Abba Dad, but he's also our Heavenly Father who has complete authority over us. And he disciplines us for our good. In, the chapter, tw- in chapter 12 of Hebrews, he tells us that if we're not experiencing God's discipline, we're not legitimate children. And he says, you know, you've had earthly fathers, you've submitted to them, and then he asks the question, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And I see this as affecting my prayer because much of what I pray is, Lord, deal with that situation or deal with that person who's really getting it wrong. Sort them out. Sort this out. But when I realize that I'm, I need to subject myself to God's discipline, I can say, Lord, this situation seems to be wrong. But I can also say, God, what are you teaching me through it? And maybe his answer is not to deal with that person, but to deal with me. God doesn't have a downloadable app for patience or a downloadable app for humility. He puts us in positions where we have to show those characteristics and we quickly find out our need. And our helplessness, as we said at the beginning, should draw us back to God. And what we see is God in his discipline is working his character in us. He doesn't magic us into being loving, patient, kind. He works that in us. And so I see prayer, one part of it at least, is that it's a journey. It's not a formula. It's a journey where the, our father, with our Father God, and the end result is not what we often ask for, the health, wealth, and happiness, and I'm paraphrasing our desires, but Christ-likeness. And if you think about it, I've never heard anyone say, um, you know, I've got to take, that's a real blessing from the Lord today. It's usually God's given us a better house. What a blessing from the Lord. So it's hidden in there that we equate wealth, health, and happiness with God's blessing, and yet he's wanting to work something much bigger in us. And yes, God does bless us, as we will see. So we need, when we come to our Heavenly Father, we're coming to that God who's both infinite and close, and we're saying, we submit to your authority. Discipline us, work in us, Christ-likeness. But we're also receiving his identity. As a father, he gives us his identity. We share his name. We've been brought into his family. Our primary identity now is not what I do, my nationality, how good I am at my job, how much money I make, who I know, not even how good my kids are or how successful they are, but it is being a son or a daughter of the living God. Yes, we know this, and we know this with our heads, but it needs to enter our hearts. Paul says, Romans 8:17, we've received when we become Christians, not just forgiveness, but adoption. He says, the spirit of, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Can we cry, Dad, Father, to God? Yes, understanding the reverence, the awe, but coming to him with that intimacy. God delights in us coming to him as Dad. And when, when in my work, I have to travel. And my wife says, too often I say, not that often. But I have to travel, and I hate the travel itself. I usually enjoy what I do when I get there. But to be honest, the best moment is coming home, walking through the door, and usually, not always, usually hearing the kids yell, Dad, and come running, and hugs. Unless they're on the PlayStation, then it's just an inconvenience that I happen to show up. 
but there's that sense of delight, come, them coming to me, me coming to them. And that's what God wants. He wants that intimate delight that we experience with our own children. Of course, as I said, our imperfect earthly fathers can mess this up a bit for us, and we need to perhaps deal with that. But God is our loving Heavenly Father. Whatever the earthly model, so to speak, we may have had, God is that good, good Father, that Abba Father. So when I come to our Heavenly Father, I'm coming in intimacy and closeness to that God of the universe. Now he also, as Father, welcomes us and works for our good. There's that amazing verse in Hebrews 4 where it says, we don't come cringing into God's presence, aware of our sin and unworthiness. We come with boldness and confidence. Paul says the same in Ephesians 3. We have confidence to draw near through Christ. It's his work on the cross. And so it doesn't matter my particular state of mind when I come to God as Father. I could have had a great week doing my quiet time every day, praying for my wife and children, evangelizing, reading my Bible. doesn't give me any more right to come than if I've had a row with my wife, yelled at the kids, kicked the dog, not read my Bible. I still have the same access because it's not based on me. It's based on Christ's righteousness. And that never changes. And in fact, Jesus gives us that invitation, Matthew 11, Come to me, not you who've got it all together, you who's doing everything right, you who are weary, heavy laden, you haven't got it all together. Come to me. It's our helplessness that draws us to God. And I, I love the fact that my boys can just come confidently barging into my office when I'm working. They, they know that there's not a protocol to see dad. I'm their dad. They have access. God is our heavenly father. We have access. And I like how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 31 to 32. He asks the question, if this loving God Father is for us, does it really matter who or what is against us? Who can be against us? And he answers the question and says, well, that same God gave up his own son. He didn't even spare Jesus. How can, it's inconceivable to think that he won't give us graciously all things with him. God is for us. And he works for our good. So when we pray our Father in heaven, yes, we're coming to that infinite God of the universe, but we're coming to our loving Father. As we submit to him in his authority and discipline, we can also expect his bountiful goodness towards us. He is our dad. He loves us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's a kind of curious prayer because we may think, well, to hallow something, I'm just going to jump ahead, is to make holy. How do we make God's name holy? Isn't it already holy? Well, yes, it is. And we can't make God any more holy than he already is. But something, there's something wrapped up in God's name that reveals his glory, his honor. As you read through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you see time and time again God saying, I'm acting on behalf of my name. In his name is wrapped up who he is as a person. You know, we could even see that on a slightly childish level. In the World Cup, I'm sure, when somebody scores a goal, they're going to be pointing to their name on the back of the shirt. It's their glory, their honor, their reputation. God's name, infinitely greater. He's telling us the first petition of this Lord's Prayer is, Lord, may your name be made holy, lifted up, 
in the sight of the nations. So as I put on an earlier side, in a sense it is praise, but it's also petition. Yes, I'm coming to God saying, God, I worship you. Your name is holy, but I'm asking him to make it holy in my life. And it perhaps helps us to see the opposite of making holy is that word profane, which again is, comes out of the Old Testament. God warns his people in the law, don't profane my name. What does he mean by that? Does he mean don't say nasty things about my name? Don't use my name casually? Yes, but much more than that. He says, you know, if you act like those despicable nations around you, that profanes my name. He talks about you offering your children to Molech, the God, their God. That would profane my name. If you come without the sacrifices, that would profane my name. And he says, if you lie and use my name to back it up, that profanes my name. And so we see this lament in the Old Testament law, the way the people of Israel got it so wrong, they're eventually kicked out of the land, and the prophets are left crying out that when they came to the nations, wherever they came, it says in Ezekiel, they profane my holy name. Why? Because that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land because of their disobedience. That's what profaned God's name. Malachi 1.12, after God is saying, my name's great among the nations, but he says, you, my people, you, you profaned it. That is the tragedy. Paul quotes uh, in Romans 2, he quotes Isaiah 52, saying, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so God in Ezekiel says, you know what? I acted for the sake of my name, that it shouldn't be profaned in the sight of the nations. We can see this perhaps wrapped up in Leviticus 22.32. Chris said he's not going to mention Leviticus next week, so I'm doing it this week. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. When we live in disobedience, we profane God's name. Living in disobedience profanes God's name. Living in obedience sanctifies his name. It doesn't make him holy, but it, it's that double use of the word there that we saw in Leviticus. We can't make God any holier, but by our lives we can reflect his holiness, and that's how we sanctify his name. So we can't pray this prayer lightly. We can't say, yes, I've said the Lord's Prayer this morning. Lord, hallowed be thy name. Great. But if there's false idols in my life, disobedience, lack of love for others, that profanes God's name far more than me using a swear word about God. And if I obey God and live the way he wants, that honors God's name far more than me reciting the Lord's Prayer a hundred times before breakfast. So when we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed by thy name, on earth as in heaven, we're praying and asking God, come and help us live in a way that honors your name. My life, my family, my community group, my church. Because God wants to be glorified in his church through the way we are. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 12. He says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's what he wants to do in the church. How about I put that there? Through Abbey Church. The people sitting around you. Can you imagine that? God is going to demonstrate his wisdom, not just to the people around us, but to the authorities, rulers, powers 
through the person sitting next to you as part of Abbey Church. That's the call we have as church. Ephesians 3.21, jumping forward a few verses. To him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus. Where? In Abbey Church and in Christ Jesus. So to pray, hallowed be thy name, is to put a responsibility on ourselves to submit to that discipline of the Father and say, Lord, where I'm not hallowing your name through my disobedience, lack of love, work in me that I might truly hallow your name. James, I think, hits home. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. Lord, hallowed be your name. And then with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That can be our experience, sadly, as Christians. And he goes on to say, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. It's through me, it's through you, it's through us this morning that God's name is either hallowed or profaned. And when we pray this prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're asking him to be holy among us and to help us live in a way that reflects that. And so we come back to our weakness and our helplessness. I can't do that, but Christ in me can. So I come with that connection saying, Lord, work that in me because it's beyond me. We come to that loving Father, the infinite one who is near. We come with boldness because he's our dad. We come with reverence because he's our Lord. And we pray, Lord, hallowed be your name. Be holy among us. Help us reflect your glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name in and through Abbey Church, just like it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Graham.